Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, last week we looked at how economics textbooks had taught us the law of demand and how it was all wrong, drawing those demand curves on very simple graphs. All just plain wrong. Well, today, the supply curve makes even less sense, if that's possible, for something that makes no sense whatsoever. How can it be any less sense than that? But we'll look at it anyway. So in two weeks, we will have pulled apart the first chapter of every school economics textbook, economists say. Uh, That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Well, last time we looked at the fallacy of the demand curve. It's not a law, we decided. It doesn't always respond to changes in price at the aggregate level anyway, because there are so many other factors to consider. And when you factor in the relationship between works, uh, workers, capitalists and bankers, the whole theory falls apart. Listen to last week's podcast for more on that. Today, it gets even more exciting. The supply curve and the point at which, and we are going to do both of these today, the supply curve and the point at which the two intercept. I don't think we can separate them out. Uh, By the way, Steve, um, after last week, Mitchell wrote and said, are there any books you can suggest uh, for someone with basic, uh, a basic economic understanding, a basic economics background, mm-hmm. anything you would, you would suggest to help them understand uh, and improve their overall knowledge? This is in relation to you know, getting down to the basics that we spoke about last week. Where would you start? If you'd read all those economics textbooks and now you wanted the truth, where would you start, other than obviously debunking economics? Yeah, well, yeah, that, thank you for saying that one for me. Um, the other one, that <laughs> I, the, and the, that, that is really, a, a, you know, it, it's a 100% critique. Um, the other book I'd recommend is one which was out of print for a hell of a long time by an Australian mathematician called John Blatt. And I think I've mentioned John Blatt a couple of times, but I'll give you a background here. Uh, he was exposed to economics by being invited along to attend a, a talk uh, by one other person at the same university he was at who was also nominated for but didn't get the relevant Nobel Prize. So Blatt was nominated twice for the Nobel Prize in physics. The guy who invited him right. was, was nominated once for the Nobel Prize in economics. And when the guy giving the economics talk finished and asked Blatt what he thought, Blatt said, that is the greatest rule of the world of rubbish I have sat through in my entire academic career. And I intend to find there must be something, if that is advanced economics, there's something seriously wrong. And I intend finding out what it is. That's my very bad attempt at an Austrian accent. Uh, <laughs> Not that we work on stereotypes at all. At Not all at all. No, I've got to have, uh, hang on. I've got yeah. a couple of Austrians in my background that I can actually research if necessary. Um, but yeah, um, he, and so he wrote this book called Dynamic Economic Systems. And I, in my opinion, it is the best, uh, the best ever yeah. overview of economics, both critique and putting forward alternatives. And then it went out of print. Well, very luckily, uh, a short while ago, I think it's Routledge, uh, re-released it as a Kindle. So search for uh, John no. Blatt, B-L-A-T-T, and the book is called Dynamic Economic Systems. And please ignore Amazon's summary that it's about Hong Kong uh, uh, commercial law. 
<laughs> that will have put a few people off. Yeah, I'm sure right, it has. So, so, yeah. so Blatt is the name to look. That reminds me, by the way, I remember getting in trouble years and years ago at school. I know it was heavily influenced by Spike Milligan, clearly in my early days. Uh, we had to uh, write it was something that would appear on someone's gravestone, just a, mm-hmm. a lesson in creativity. And mine was, here lies Reginald Spratt, who ran in front of a bus. Splat. For uh, <laughs> <laughs> some reason, I thought it was genius. Now, okay, let's look at the uh, supply curve. Not as good, not as good so, as what is actually on the Spike Mulligan's tombstone. You know what that is, don't you? Uh, I told you I was ill. Was that one in his? That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I told you I was ill. And I love yeah. the uh, the fact that uh, he, uh, w- what was the town on the central coast uh, in uh, New South Wales? Roy Ward. Roy Ward, the world's biggest above ground cemetery. We could just spend an hour uh, talking uh, Spike Mulligan, couldn't we? In fact, you know, I could. We could. Uh, there was a baboon. Who one afternoon decided to ride to the sun. So with uh, oh no, I see, I can't remember it now. Um, mm. So with two great palms strapped to his arms, he started his takeoff run. Mile after mile, he galloped in style, but he never once passed the, left the ground. You're going too slow, said a passing crow. Try reaching the speed of sound. So he put on a spurt. By God, how it hurt! Both of his uh, souls. Got, now there, I'm losing it now. But um, yeah. There we are. Amazing ass. I mean, I'm to give you that, 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 ladies and gentlemen, that is completely unscripted and live. Okay. So this is, now, what this were we is, going this to talk about? This is the memory bank of Phil Dobby <laughs> what are we on going Spike to, Milligan. What were we going to talk about today? The supply curve. Supply curve. Which Spike Milligan never wrote about, uh, perhaps, uh. because he realized it was, uh, even for him, it was nonsense. Uh, but. Interesting, mm-hmm. isn't it? Looking at the supply curve, but the example of you know where it, maybe it does work is in the oil industry. Given all it takes is a blocked sewers. See what I did there uh, to say <laughs> a blocked sewers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, yeah well uh, done. Sending prices rise. No claps for that one. Sorry. <laughs> sending yeah. prices rising. So surely that is the case that you know we do have this uh, elasticity in in supply. Where well, we see we see this responsiveness in supply. If supply falls straight away, the, the the oil price shoots up immediately, not for long. But this is one industry, isn't it? An example where in that industry prices are completely driven by supply. And that supply, obviously, is controlled by an oligopoly as well. Yeah, look, that's, a, that's a good example because I'm, I'm going to be trashing the theory of supplies that applies to manufactured goods. But uh, mm. Koleski, who um, is re- re- really the economist that we should, non-Orthodox economists should name themselves after, we decided in a poll on Twitter just recently, um, <laughs> made, made the point that, that commodity prices like that, where the supply is, uh, is limited and... The stuff, particularly when it's going to decay, like in agricultural output, but equally oil, where it has to be available or your cars don't move. Um, the demand, uh, the price will respond very rapidly to a shortage in supply. Uh, it's got nothing to do with the marginal cost of getting it out of the ground. The price is far higher than that, uh, but that is demand determined, and the price will vary very radically because the supply can plunge. You know, as we've seen, as soon as that um, canal is blocked, then okay, no oil gets through. Uh, from the oil-producing states on the south side to the oil-consuming states on the north side of the Suez Canal. And, uh, yeah, the price goes up through the roof. So, yeah, uh, and, and also a higher supply uh, will encourage a higher... A higher, a higher price will encourage a higher level of supply. Uh, so, yeah, that, in, in that sense, an upward-sloping supply curve for oil... Uh, makes plenty of sense. But you said it there, didn't you? You mentioned, you know, the, the margin. So the the supply curve in the economics textbooks, the, you know, the quantity produced on the x-axis, we've got the price on the y-axis, the law says the higher the price, the more producers will want to supply higher quantities to the market to make more money. But it's, I mean, it, it's is it the price or is it the margin on that product, which obviously is a very different thing? 
Well, I mean, it, 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 it comes down to this whole world word marginal. And uh, economics, the actually neoclassical economists were originally described as, quote unquote, the marginalists. And they say everything happens on the margin. And if you read Greg Mancuse's brilliantly exciting literary wonder called the microeconomics, the textbook of microeconomics, uh, which, you know, I, I read occasionally when I, when I can't get to sleep fast enough. Um, it's... It says that every, economists know that everything is calculated at the margin. So on the demand curve, which we trashed in the last, last podcast, that's supposed to be the marginal benefit of consuming a commodity, and the marginal benefit falls as the quantity consumes uh, rises, whereas the, margin, the supply curve is literally supposed to be the marginal cost curve. Mm. And, um, and this is supposed marginal cost. Is, it's not that uh, you have to offer a higher price to induce... Uh, suppliers to, to supply more to the market and their margin, the profit margin, goes up as a result. It's the, uh, the, literally, it is based exclusively on the idea that the amount of productivity they get out of uh, their factories declines as you increase output. So that's what they call diminishing marginal productivity. And the inverse of diminishing marginal productivity effectively is rising marginal cost. So the whole thing comes down to the idea it costs more. As you increase the amount being produced, it costs more to produce that amount, and that's why the price rises. Right. But that is the opposite of economies of scale, isn't it? Now, I know there are diseconomies of scale when you reach a point, but isn't the idea with economies of scale that the more you produce, that the, uh, the, the, the higher the margin you go, you're going to get? If you're, if you're charging the same price at each level, the higher the margin you're going to get. Well, when they talk about economies of scale, and, and this is one of the few sensible things in economics, though neoclassicals managed to mangle it up anyway, um, but economies of scale are the thing which, where you change the actual scale of operations. So you go from a blast furnace, which is, you know, imagine you had a, this, this is a bit like what physicists will do, they assume a spherical cow. Well, I'm going to assume a square, a, 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 a cubic uh, blast furnace. So if you have a blast furnace, which is one cubic metre, uh, that's going to have six square metres of steel because each side of that cube, there are six sides, each side is going to be one metre one meter by one metre. So you've got one square metre per side, six of them to make up the overall cube, that's six square metres, and that six square metres can process one cubic metre of, uh, of, of stuff at any one time to produce your output. But if you double the size of the of the uh, you go if the, if the cube you go from one meter to two meters per side then you're going to have four square meters sides so that's 24 square meters as your area uh, but the internal area goes to eight so you have a a, you know, a, a fourfold increase in your um, area and so there, and that's sort of how much it costs to produce how much steel you need to make this cubic blast furnace but the volume goes from one cubic meter to uh, to eight cubic meters two by two by two uh, and so you get an eightfold increase in output with a fourfold increase in the cost and that's economies of scale now what economists are great at doing and i'm so sick of them doing it i'm going to call them out before they bloody well do it to this particular uh, podcast is there, there if, if you show something up which which uh, demolishes the argument about uh, marginal cost rising, uh, which is a short-term thing where you don't change the scale of operation. You're assuming in that theory that your uh, capital machinery is fixed. Uh, you take them on that. They'll throw something about you from economies of scale. They'll do it all the damn time. So bugger off. This is, we're talking about a situation uh, which is just in the short term where 
back to my square, um, my cubic um, blast furnace example, you've got a cu- you've got a blast furnace which is one uh, cubic blast furnace uh, where each each side of that uh, blast furnace is one meter long, and then you're supposed to get diminishing productivity out of that as you add. Uh, in, in the production process as you add more workers to the blast furnace you know, on the Not outside rather than yeah, the exactly. inside obviously yeah. Yeah. And, and, and more steel uh, but I'm going to go from that his hypothetical example now to the real world and say uh, we've got to look inside the a real world factory to see what actually happens with diminishing marginal product and rising marginal cost which is what the economists assume happens uh, but they're wrong that doesn't happen at all so uh, where, where do we start? We get the well, basic theory. Why do you go? Well, I mean, I, I think it's good to follow these economies of scale um, because, I mean, that this is crucial to the direction the supply curve takes, isn't it? So No, it's not. No, no. Dimin- the economies of scale are a long-term thing. That's where you can change the scale of your, your operation. Right, okay. You know, and this one, is supposed we, to be a point yeah, in time. This is, which is a yeah. point in time where, you, where your, your capital is fixed. Mm. So you've got a, if, if, if you've got one cubic metre... Uh, blast furnaces, and you'd be better off with two, with eight cubic meter blast furnaces. Tough, tough, tough cookies. Um, that's the long term. In the meantime, you've got to do the best you can with all your one cubic meter blast furnace. Right, but what we see, of course, with uh, with oil, uh, which is a useful comparison, isn't it? That because of the the oligopoly that exists, uh, then you've got uh, you've got producers who are turning down and turning up supply as they see fit. Uh, whereas if you're running a factory, basically you run the factory hot, don't you? You've got the machines, uh, you've got the people employed. You might as well produce 100% of what you can produce. Now, Tarrant, mate, you're, you're getting ahead of yourself here. You're bringing in reality. But okay, so we haven't made it to reality. <laughs> but what we this, haven't made it to reality yet. Well, this right, is an economic okay, theory. Okay, all yeah. right. Well, so okay. what, what's the economic theory then? I would, well, the economic theory, I, I would the economic run my machines at 50% if that would help me arrive at the optimum price. That's what they're saying. Yeah, effectively, yeah. And, mm. and the, re, the logic they, they go through is to say, well, you've got this fixed amount of machinery. So you're, you're fixed, you've got in the short term, when you can't change your scale of operation, therefore economies of scale are irrelevant, uh, in that operation you've got a fixed amount of machinery. Let's say you've got a hundred, imagine you've got a... a, a um, uh, the, the standard size of a blast furnace at this stage is one cubic metre. Uh, so you've got all these you know, one cubic metre blast furnaces, a hundred of them, inside a factory. Uh, and then you want to produce more output. Uh, well, you can't change the number of machines or their scale, but you can change the number of workers you apply to the overall factory and the, num- and the amount of material you put through each of those blast furnaces. Now, again, economics as usual, abstracts from reality. So when you look at their models, and you take, you take a look at a textbook like Mancu, for example, um, Mancu has some wonderfully imaginative names for his imagined companies. So one is uh, Conrad's Coffee Shop. And Conrad's Coffee Shop uh, has obviously just one, one espresso machine and produces between one and 10 cups of coffee per hour. Now, uh, if you can find me a, co- a, 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 um, a coffee shop that operates on that scale. <laughs> not a very successful one, I'd say. Not yeah. a very successful one. This is, there's a reason for that, by the way, which I've, I can explain later. Uh, but they have these small scale of, of outputs. And what he shows is uh, that the initial cup of coffee, the first one to be made, has a marginal cost of uh, 20, roughly 25 cents um, for, the first, for the first cup of coffee. 
Um, and then the marginal cost rises up to $2 per cup of coffee when you get up to 10 cups of coffee. Why? So it's actually good. Yeah, why? Why? Yeah. Why, you ask? Why? Why? <laughs> yeah. uh, why would it be? Why? Because the marginal cost is just the cost of the staff hours and the mm -hmm. materials. I mean, it would be the well, same. Yeah, and and the they, same even leave, they even leave the materials out. It's just the staff hours. <laughs> okay. Right, okay. So, so what they what they argue is that um, you uh, each each worker you hire, you pay exactly the same wage. They presume there's either a competitive market, uh, which means you you you're as a buyer of labour, you have no impact on the price in their usual nonsense theory, uh, or they presume there's a fixed price, like a, a trade union. You can't vary it, so you pay the same wage per worker. You get the same productivity out of each worker, so each worker is effectively identical. What is happening is that as you add more workers to the fixed amount of machinery you've got, uh, the machine the workers start to get into each other's way, and your productivity falls as you add more workers. And they they often start with an example where there's rising productivity for a while until you hit an ideal ratio of workers to machines, but then you. You get past that ratio and you're getting more output by adding more workers to the fixed number of machines, but that productivity is falling over time. Right. So all of this is ignoring the, the, the money that I've spent buying that coffee machine in the first place and therefore that the, 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 uh, the, the cost per coffee is going to be, be reduced the more coffee I produce because the big cost is not the staff probably. The big cost is actually having bought the very expensive coffee machine. Oh, no, the machine's trivial. I mean, just looking at the price here on Mancu's figure four, chapter 13, page 277 of the 2016 textbook, I think it is. Mm. The, and he, what, immediately what he's looking at is the, is the financing cost of buying that uh, cappuccino machine, the espresso machine. So um, for, for the okay, one so cup small of coffee... Yeah, okay. Well, yeah. it is small compared... Yeah. He, he, he's saying that the, the hourly cost of that cappuccino machine... Um, a, when you've got one, uh, when you're producing one cup of coffee per hour, which is, you know, that's what I call a busy coffee shop, uh, is $3. And when you get to 10 cups of coffee, the fixed cost is 25 cents. Uh, and there was the marginal cost of the maximum output. I'm just reading this right off the graph, which this is, you might get, gather this is an article I'm writing right now, which I'll be giving to my patrons shortly. Uh, the, the, the average fixed cost at the, at the maximum output of this uh, Conrad's coffee shop of 10 cups per hour, uh, the, the average fixed cost is 25 cents, whereas the marginal cost is $2. Mm. Okay, so he's got the marginal cost being 10 times the, the average fixed cost of that scale of output. And that's typical. That's what all these drawings, and there's no better way to describe them. They're simply drawings. They're not based on data in all these textbooks have. So, so how do they explain it? What do you, let you, what do you, how do you reckon they explain diminishing productivity uh, with rising output? Well, other than, as you've said, with people getting in the way of each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's yeah. what. So I mean, there are examples as well. If you decided that you're going to open later into the night, for example, you could make more money out of the out of the machinery you've got if you extended your hours. You might, it might be more expensive to employ people in the. Uh, they, they leave that out of the theory. 
I believe no. in that out of the theory. Because that's, he, 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 that's he, real he, world. I gave a real world example. Yeah. I apologise yeah, yeah. for bringing oh, no, that share, into share economic discussion. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, let's go. Let's go back to the fantasy world of neoclassical textbooks. And here is Caroline's cookie factory. Right. Um, and he, here's the quote, page 273 of Mankiw. At first, when only a few workers are hired, they have easy access to Caroline's kitchen equipment. As the number of workers increases, additional workers have to share equipment and work in more crowded conditions. No, Eventually, the, the mm. kitchen is so crowded that the workers start getting in each other's way. Mm. They could buy more now, machines. So, so what, what we've got is, in other words, what they're assuming is manufacturers are a bunch of effing idiots. <laughs> it does sound like okay. that. And that is the whole That's theory. Exactly what the- so the whole theory, because it is bizarre, and yet we sat through economics lessons being told that. Mm. that the, uh, yeah. The, mm. So the economy, yeah. and the, the diseconomies of scale. This is all. This is the this is the term they use. No, 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 no again, not again. Right. It, it is down to how much of your capacity you actually utilise and right. how how you design a factory. So let's go. Let's jump across. Let's let's get put myself on that fantasy world I had a moment ago of a, a, a steel mill with a hundred um, blast furnaces each with a one cubic metre capacity. Right, where you've been um, burning and, the and workers in the glass. No, no, you're burning just, the you, workers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We well, got to get the carbon from somewhere. Um, <laughs> Really? No, we'll keep okay. it in. But look, no anyway. disrespect to blast furnace workers okay. Okay. listing. Okay. Right? So we, we've got, let's say the ideal ratio of workers to blast furnaces is, is 10 workers per blast furnace. Okay? Then their theory effectively says that if you have 100 blast furnaces in your factory and you have 10 workers, you will have one worker per 10 blast furnaces. And that poor worker is sprinting around trying to do the work of a thousand, effectively, a uh, hundred, uh, doing the work. So you're using all of your fixed capacity and mm. all of your labour simultaneously. Whereas in a realistic world, if you only had enough demand to justify 10 workers in a factory where you had 100 blast furnaces and there was 10 workers per blast furnace, you would have one blast furnace operating and the other 99 would be idle. Now yeah. and then, as you expanded output, each time you do it, you do it, you'd, work, you'd go in the ideal capacity of workers per blast furnace. Now, of course, in the real world, you don't you don't end up with you know, using one percent of your capacity. When you take a look at the capacity data uh, for the United States, which is aggregate firm capacity, uh, the maximum capacity of of uh, industrial capacity that's ever been utilised. I was back in 1965, and it was 88 mm. percent of the, the the capital. And if you think about again, now I'm going to bring in time to some extent here. If you are designing a factory uh, which is going to be adding to your existing productive capacity, then when you produce it, you don't want it to be completely consumed by new demand straight away. You want it to be you know, able to last, say, five or ten years. But if you build a factory to add on to your existing capacity. Um, and you hope it to be uh, able to keep on going for 10 years, when you open that factory up, it'll be operating at 70% capacity. So what shape is the supply so, curve then in your mind? Horizontal to falling. Right. And the interesting, the, the interesting thing is... So horizontal makes was, perfect sense to me. Cause, yeah, uh, yeah. Because it's because because it, the costs are the the costs are the same in 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 effect. I mean, and the, and yeah, there could be economies of scale in the long term, which is presumably why you're saying it's falling. You've also got a factory in that there's many many companies, of course, all competing, and uh, and supply is so. There's the interesting question: if if that coffee shop had another coffee shop next door to it. And uh, they were producing, uh, uh, and the one coffee shop was selling 10 cups of coffee uh, an hour. 
and another one opens up next door and starts selling uh, five cups of coffee an hour. Do we all drink fifteen cups, or does the or, or, or does their, their their demand fall? And you know, it's that industry wide and geographic location, all of that gets factored into it as well, doesn't it? Well, what actually factors in is you are trying to compete with people where your costs are constant or falling. And the reason they're falling, by the way, uh, it doesn't take economies of scale. If you have an enormous factory um, producing, and that's why I use the steel example, uh, we we tend to think in terms of stuff we go and visit ourselves, you know, like coffee shops. But the real, most of what we consume is made in large factories by large production Mm. uh, companies. And what you've got is air conditioning designed over the entire uh, environment. Management, which has to, you know, you've got management delegated to different sections of the of the uh, production process as well. So yeah. as you you got all those as fixed you costs. Reach, yeah. As you but as you reach as you approach capacity, your costs are falling uh, for two reasons. One, your fixed costs are being amortised across a larger volume, and fixed costs are far larger than neoclassical economists think. So the example I gave in that textbook with a fixed cost for about ten percent of marginal costs. In fact. When economists have gone and done this awful thing called research, where they actually go and ask firms what their costs are, uh, what they have found is that fixed costs are at least 40% of total costs, not in that case 10%, but 40%, and often a lot higher, 85%. Yeah, well, in that, in that coffee shop, yeah. it's not the, the labour that's the cost, it's not the, uh, the coffee machine, which is an incidental expense, and they're probably right on that. It's actually the rent for the premises is the, uh, yeah, is the, yeah. is the major cost, yeah. and that doesn't move, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what you have is a world in, in, in the factory world in which uh, when it's well managed, first of all, you design the factory so it's most efficient at full capacity. Secondly, uh, you start it at below full capacity because you're in, in, in living in an environment where growth has been taken for granted. So whenever you build a factory, you build it with excess capacity to be able to handle the number of years of expansion. Uh, and then thirdly, you gave example of competing against a neighbouring coffee shop. You want the neighbouring coffee shop to give somebody salmonella uh, poisoning so that suddenly they can't compete anymore and you take over all their demand because as you take over more demand, you're your, your, your fixed costs are falling per unit. Your be variable costs are constant or falling per unit as well. You come out doubly ahead. So it's the, the, the real world as well where you're competing against other firms marketing yourself. So you try to get as much of your capacity used as possible. And if you don't have spare capacity, you're going to lose out when an opportunity comes along. That's the real world. So the uh, the example of from an economics textbook in the, where you've got those two coffee shops, where the new one comes mm. along, um, then you are going to push up the, uh, the the cost of coffee because you know because you've got now you've now got two premises, so presumably the price of coffee is going to go up. The, the, you're going to move. no. Well, you've got two. You've got per price per unit. So um, I mean, and then the again, price per unit, usually, given the, given the fixed yeah. cost is so high, the price per unit would increase. But you're saying they ignore that because it's all to do with the marginal cost. Well, there's all the marginal costs. But what, what, what they've got is a world in which diminishing productivity per, per worker causes rising marginal costs. That's entirely their logic. Mm. And the intriguing thing is that um, it's mainly economists from my side of the, of the fence, the non-orthodox economists, who's, who've realised this, this doesn't make sense. And actually, it actually goes right back to the 1930s because uh, in late 20s, early 30s, what's called the Oxford Study Group, a group of economists uh, based at Oxford University, decided they could they could benefit from talking to businessmen, and businessmen could benefit from talking to them. And when they had their first conversation, it was it was like you know the the, the businessmen were wondering whether they walked into a into a um, 
an opium den uh, because they, they were feeling totally stoned by the conversation they were having and all these concepts the economists were throwing at them about marginal costs and so on. You kind of say, what are you talking about? I mean, we, we don't think that way at all. And um, when, when, the, when the economists then decided to go and check out the factories and, and see what the cost structure was, what they found was these companies had high fixed costs. So the more units you sold, the lower your average fixed costs were. But most importantly, the variable costs, which they presume would rise because of diminishing marginal productivity, were actually either constant uh, or falling. So it was actually costing either as much or less to produce extra, extra output. And therefore, uh, if, you, if you have falling variable cost, uh, that's you know, looking at the you know, n- number of workers times their wage uh, you know, divided by the output level. Uh, if that's falling, then the marginal is actually below the average. And according to neoclassical economic theory, you would have no supply curve at all in that situation. Because they about- argue... Yes. Yeah. What about the situation though, where you've got, uh, you know, because nothing is produced in isolation. There's always a supply chain. Mm. So what happens when upping your production puts a demand on something on the on the supply chain, which doesn't want to be increased in, in value? They're quite happy to supply at the level they are now, either because they've they've you know they reckon it's the optimum position for them in terms of the revenue they're going to get. Or because um, they physically can't produce anymore because there's not enough space on ships or there's not enough uh, ground to grow the crops. You know, maybe it's it's something which is in limited supply. Then you are going to increase your cost the, the more you produce, aren't you? That's that's you, you, you need to divert the 1926 Raffa award for that because that's what Piero Raffa put across as one of the two situations that demolishes the idea of supply curve. He said when you look at the input and output dynamics, then you get a very very different world, mm. uh, and particularly where you have a, when you, when you're talking of the very broad definition of an industry, the broader your definition of an industry, like if you go from talking about making nails to manufacturing, then when whatever you call your variable resource uh, is going to be something where if you demand more of the variable resource and you're talking at the level of the manufacturing, then you're going to be taking workers away from services and that's going to cause wages to rise. So he said those price dynamics can't be ignored at that level. But we're back at the level of looking at you know, a factory just making nails. You know, what goes on at that factory where you're making nails where you're buying, you're hiring a relatively insignificant segment of the entire uh, workforce, so you can get away with the assumption you're not going to drive up wages. And in, in that world, Schraffer said that it made logical sense that firms would work um, uh, at, at the best ratio they can find between their fixed uh, units and the demand they currently have. What stops them using 100% of their capacity is that they don't have enough demand to do that, so they're going to be competing against each other by product differentiation to try to ha- grab you know, the, the market that exists. And in that world, the, the cost of, con- of production will either be constant or falling. And when economists went out and did surveys, that's exactly what they found. So there's a whole literature, uh, particularly in the 1940s and early 1950s, of non-Orthodox economists going out and asking firms, what do your cost curves look like? And the answer that came back uh, completely contradicted the, um, the textbooks. And I've, here's, I'm going to give you my favourite quote. The last time this was done was in 1998 by an economist by the name of Alan Blinder. And here's how he summarised his results. The overwhelmingly bad news here 
brackets for economic theory, close brackets, mm-hmm. is that apparently only 11% of GDP is produced under conditions of rising marginal cost. Almost half is produced under constant marginal cost, but that leaves a stunning 40% of GDP in firms that report declining marginal cost functions. He continued on the fixed cost issue. Firms report having very high fixed costs, roughly 40% of total costs on average. Uh, and he said, and many more companies report they have falling rather than rising marginal cost curves. While there are reasons to wonder whether the respondents interpreted the questions correctly, and this is the usual economist out, if your answer doesn't make sense because you didn't understand my question, uh, their answers paint a picture, an image of the cost structure of the typical firm that is very different from the one immortalised in textbooks. Right. So that's very simple, isn't it? So the whole theory falls falls apart because it ignores fixed costs, and fixed costs is the significant part of the production cost for Partly most that, that and also it, it, it assumes that firms have diminishing marginal productivity where in, in a well-managed factory, well-designed and well-managed factory, you have constant or rising yeah. uh, productivity because nobody – you look at the example of a blast furnace taking 10 workers uh, and you've got 10 of them. And, and uh, you got, you've got 10 workers. So in the neoclassical theory, you allocate one worker per blast furnace. No, you don't. You can put the 10 of those on one blast furnace and leave the other 10 idle. Um, so you always try to get the, the perfect, the best relate ratio between your variable and fixed costs. This whole idea of, of, of using lower, product, lower levels of input to uh, variable to fix than is ideal and then higher just doesn't happen. And, and so, so economists have dreamt of, a world in which if their assumptions are correct, then the theory makes, uh, you can explain a rising marginal cost curve and therefore a rising supply curve. But their theory is nonsense. Right. And in fact, manufacturers felt insulted when they had it explained to them. Some of these manufacturers uh, literally ended up saying they felt insulted by economic theory. And I think they're dead right. They are insulted by economic theory. So the, 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 this is right, though, isn't it? You know, the, uh, ignoring the, the direction the curves take. You know, the argument is, when we're looking at those supply and demand curves in our first year of economics, is that you can only sell at a price that the market is going to bear. You can't sell more than that. That's fair enough, isn't it? You know, you can't, you can't sell something for more than people are prepared to pay for it. And companies will only produce up to the point where they're maximizing their margin. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? Unless we include fixed costs within that. But uh, that, but that is probably going to be at the point where they reach 100% capacity and they don't want to make the investment. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and this, is, this, this is the answer that came back from firms. When firms were asked, what level of capacity, what, what level of, of output capacity do you maximise your profit? The answer of the vast majority of firms was 100%. Yeah. So with the neoclassical theory and all the drawings they do have got firms maximising uh, their uh, profit at about, say, 50 to 70% of capacity because they have this assumption of rising marginal cost. Right. And, and the marginal cost curve uh, is, the marginal cost lies well above total cost. Now, when firms actually uh, explain what goes on, marginal cost is not only below total cost, it's below variable cost. So anybody who priced at marginal cost would go bankrupt very, very quickly. And this is not your you know, monopolies, not your Googles of the world, it's, it's your ordinary competitive firms. Now, the, the thing I want to focus on here, which I think is quite hilarious, I've only, only just realised this in the last couple of weeks, and I've done the research of it in the meantime. Remember I mentioned that Alan Blinder is somebody who found out that firms, literally his empirical research said that um, only 11% of firms have increasing marginal mm-hmm. cost, 89% have either constant or falling. Guess what Alan Blinder's textbook says? The opposite. Exactly. He completely ignores his own research. 
Okay. So he, he draws the standard economic theory of, first of all, falling marginal cost as you get rising marginal productivity. You know, as you add, you've got, you know, a blast furnace with, you've got, you got uh, 10 workers and, and, and 10 blast furnaces. Short-term so memory one. loss on his part, do you think, or did he not I, understand I think the significance of, of his belief, research? preservation of belief system. That's what it comes down to. Um, so it, it is just hilarious when, when you look at it that here's a guy who did the research found out that reality was different to the theory and stuck with the theory. Mm. Well, it's hard work, isn't it, to mm. rewrite textbooks? The, so the point at uh. which the two cross, well, now we've got, the, uh, we've got the supply curve as just a flat line, possibly slanting downwards slightly. The- well, no, the supply curve, it's not the marginal cost curve. That's the thing. If your supply curve is your marginal cost curve, you've already gone bankrupt because your marginal costs are about uh, oh, yeah. 20% of your total right. cost. Even, and if you price at that level, you're pricing below, not just below, you're below your... Your um, uh, uh, to- yeah, you've got to, you've got you're pricing so you're, below your variable costs. Yeah. So, you've, you've yeah. got, so you've got to reach your break even you, point. In other words, you've got to get before you do anything. Yeah, you've got to reach right. your break even point where you've covered yeah. your, your and each additional one is each additional uh, output is is adding to your EBIT in effect. If you know we're hmm. talking like yeah. businesses, talk. and that's the real world. That's what firms are like, and that's why calculations people do about break even points make absolute sense because when you design a factory. Uh, you will face diminishing costs. You'll have a markup you put on the price, which the markup it may be constrained to some extent by uh, by competition. Mm. Okay, so in terms of the, the scale of markup you can put on, you can't charge four hundred bucks for your, or uh, well, say forty thousand dollars for your car when comparable cars from comparable firms are being charged thirty thousand. Um, so you're going to be going roughly around an industry standard markup. Uh, but that markup is well above the marginal cost. So neoclassical economists effectively assume that if the if the car if the going price for a, 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 a mid range car is say twenty thousand pounds, let's use the UK level, uh, then the mar- the cost of that last car to produce was twenty thousand pounds. Now, in fact, the price the cost of that last car was probably about four thousand yeah, yeah. pounds. So this, uh, so I, I was going to ask, you know, how you can adapt the supply and demand curves in a way that's useful but it's it, it's useless isn't it? you mean you just rip those Chuck pages out. out there's Chuck nothing there's nothing you can learn from it at all uh, exactly it, it, it is setting, it, what this stuff is doing is conditioning you uh, to to believe that a, a belief system which is irrational is actually a rational description of the real world and the one reason that the, you get things like blinder actually doing this research and then not pub, not including it in his own textbook uh, is because he, that's what he, when you said the overwhelmingly bad news for economic theory. Mm. Because if, if this is true, if, and it is true, marginal cost is constant or falling, well below, uh, below variable cost, let alone below total cost, then you can't have marginal cost pricing. Now, if you can't have marginal cost pricing, neoclassical theory goes out the window right. because the whole idea about efficiency is marginal cost equals marginal. Uh, revenue and that's wrong. We, I mean, we still use that yeah, expression, don't we? You know, it's all supply and demand. I mean, and and it, I mean, yeah, and it's wrong. Yeah, yeah, I guess it is wrong. But but there is something in it as well. Isn't it? I mean, it's the relationships might be complicated, but there's still a supply and demand relationship, and we can we can still use that as a as an as an overarching expression. You know, if if you. You, you, you if you've, you've got to build a whole new theory. I mean, the question is how much the theory actually matters, because to me, mm. macroeconomics is far more. It's, a, it's just a piece of the general lexicon, isn't it, yeah. that we use? Even it, non-economists, people go, oh, it's just supply. It's supply and demand, mate. Well, you know, why are you charging so much? It, it, supply and demand. Yeah, that's yeah, why. Yeah. You know, that's why. That's that's why I'm trying to rip you off. Exactly. Supply and demand. That's you right. want to pay, you know. Yeah, and, and, and that's how it's used in that sense. So it, it becomes a bit of a cover for the fact that what's actually going on is your markup. 
um, mm. and and the, the price itself ends up not being something about allocation of scarce resources. It tends to be part of income distribution between workers and capitalists because uh, your primary marginal cost is going to be your, your workers and then your raw material inputs. So it's your, it's a price competition between manufacturers, uh, workers, and raw material producers, and and that's that's where your margin gets set. Not it's got nothing yeah. to do with marginal cost. So this whole thing is just an, it's an intellectual virus that I want to get rid of. <laughs> well, hopefully we've done that today. Do you feel better for it? Now we've <laughs> got that out in the open. I do. Uh, uh, let's spread it as far as we can. All right. Let's hope it goes like COVID-19, Steve. Uh, we'll mm-hmm. um, only doing good rather than evil. Uh, we'll catch you next week. Hey, look, next week I want to talk about uh, central banks. They're clearly on the run uh, from cryptocurrencies and they want to start spreading their own digital currencies. I want to talk about that, whether that's a, a good idea and what they hope to achieve from it. We'll do that next week. Good to talk. Okay. And if you enjoy listening to a couple of middle-aged blokes prattling on about economics, join us again next week for another edition of the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. See you then. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.